If you will turn to the book of James, we'll be starting in the fourth chapter, we'll be reading verses 4 through 10. That's James 4, verse 4 through 10. You adulterous people, do you not know the friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us, but he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched, and mourn, and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning, and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. Thank you. As we get started this morning, I, I want you to look down at your watch or your phone. I want you to see what time it is so that when this concludes, you know it's not my fault. <laughs> it's Todd's. Next week, we're going to start a new series of lessons called Church Words. You might see the posters out there in the uh, hallways and such. It's going to be a study of uh, specific church jargon. We, we did something like this with a, a Ministers of the Roundtable with some of our retired ministers, and it was a great study. And we're going to do a little bit more of that in a sermon format where we're going to study specific words that get used typically in church environments and, and not really anywhere else. It's going to be a great opportunity for us to not only do some theological study, but to gain an appreciation for, of what Christ has done for us, because most of those terms will relate to him and his work. Um, but this morning, I want to turn our attention to this passage in James in just a moment. But before we get into it, I do want to say this. I'm amazed at how the Bible has application for everything. In fact, I, I was recently studying, and I came across some methods for using the Bible as icebreakers between young men who are attracted to young women. In other words, I came across some biblical pickup lines that I'd like to share with you for a moment. For instance, you could walk up to a young lady and say, now I know why Solomon had 700 wives because he never met you. Or you could walk around her and then say, how many times do I have to walk around you before you fall for me? Or you could be a little bit more direct and you could walk up to her and say, you know, the apostle Paul told us to greet each other with a holy kiss. <laughs> or you could rhetorically ask, is your name Faith? Because you're the substance of things I've hoped for. <laughs> or, hey girl, the, the Bible tells us to uh, think about whatever is pure and lovely. So I've been thinking about you all day. Or my favorite one. I was reading the book of Numbers yesterday, and I realized I didn't have yours. <laughs> now, I start with those silly statements that are related to flirting simply because far too often Christians are guilty of flirting with the world. 
And Christians are even guilty of engaging in spiritual adultery. And this morning, I want us to consider if we are guilty of such. And I also want us to see what it's going to take for us to change that. So if you look there again in James chapter 4, and you look at verse 4, I want you to notice, I want you to notice what James called his readers in this passage. You adulterous people. Now, in singling this passage out, you may not realize that this is in stark contrast to the language James has been using this entire letter. You see, throughout the letter of James, he has routinely addressed his readers as brothers. He used the brother's title nine times in the book of James prior to chapter 4, verse 4, and he'll use it another six times after this passage. That was his favored title for his readers, brothers. So when he called them adulterous people, he's not only changing his reference to them, but he's indicating a different connotation. Think about it. Brothers, the title brothers, connotes relationship. The, the title brothers connotes affiliation. Brothers connotes faithfulness to one another. So brothers connotes this idea of commitment to a family. But adulterous people, the title adulterous people connotes a broken relationship. Adulterous people connotes separation. Adulterous people connotes unfaithfulness. Adulterous people connotes a broken commitment. You see, the adulterous people metaphor harkens back to the Old Testament when the relationship between God and his people was compared to a marriage. For example, in Isaiah chapter 54 and verse 5, Isaiah said, Your maker is your husband. The Lord of hosts is his name. All throughout the Old Testament, you're going to find this comparison. You're going to find this metaphor of marriage. You're going to find God envisioned as a husband and Israel envisioned as his bride. And as a result of this metaphorical relationship, whenever Israel committed idolatry, they were depicted as having committed adultery against God. That's why God declared in Jeremiah chapter 3 and verse 20, Like a woman unfaithful to her husband, so you, Israel, have been unfaithful to me. So by calling his readers an adulterous people, James was indicating that they had been unfaithful to God. But how? How, how had they been unfaithful? Well, they had been unfaithful to God because they had been flirting with the world. Look again at chapter 4 and verse 4 of James. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. In other words, James's readers were trying to be in a relationship with God and a relationship with the world simultaneously. Their relationship with the world manifested itself through their imitation of the world. 
See, if you journey through this letter, if you journey through the book of James, you'll see that they were imitating the world's discriminatory practices. Way back in chapter 2, the first 13 verses, he addresses the subject of showing favoritism. They were imitating the world's discriminatory practices. But you can also get to chapter 3 where you find out they're imitating the world's destructive and negative speech habits. That's the chapter where he talks about the tongue and compares it to a wildfire, compares it to a bitten horse's mouth, compares it to a rudder on a boat. And also in the second half of James chapter 3, we find out that they're imitating the uh, world's characteristics of bitter jealousy and selfish ambitions, as he calls it. Then if you look just to the start of this chapter, chapter 4 of James, he's criticizing them because they're imitating the world's pursuits of personal passions. And he, and he says that's what causes conflict between you. That's what causes fights and quarrels is that you're pursuing your own selfish ambitions. And here's the thing. As one commentator said, when believers behave in a worldly manner... They demonstrate that their allegiance is to the world rather than God. That's the problem here that James is addressing. The people he's writing to are so infatuated with the world that they're imitating it. Their affections are divided between God and the world. Does that sound at all familiar? That's something we experience still today, something with which we can understand the context of. And such unfaithfulness elicits God's jealousy. That's why James said in chapter 4 and verse 5, he said, do you suppose it is no purpose that the scripture says he, a reference to God, yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? James appears to be referencing the fact that when God issued the second command, the, the command which forbids idolatry, he indicated that the reason for that command was because he was a jealous God. The fact that God is jealous doesn't mean he's unrighteous. It is a righteous jealousy he has. It's, it's just and it's right because it's his refusal to share our affections with anyone or anything else. That's why scripture repeatedly presents our relationship with God as a choice. According to Jesus, we can serve God or we can serve money, but we can't serve both. According to Paul, we can be lovers of pleasure or lovers of God, but we can't love both. According to John, we can love the world or we can love the Father, but we can't love both. So what James is telling his original audience as well as us is that anything less than total Commitment to God is counted as unfaithfulness and makes us God's enemy rather than God's family. You see, we can be very guilty of spiritual adultery if we're not careful. When we let the world creep in and gain our affection, affection that's supposed to be reserved for God alone because the greatest command is for us to love him with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Not to have other affections, but to have him be our affection. 
if we're unwilling to give him that complete devotion, we can be guilty of such spiritual adultery. But here's the beauty of James. James is the most practical writer in the New Testament, in my opinion. And so he doesn't just present a problem. He offers a solution. And in one of the punchier passages of the Bible, he quickly rattles off a series of imperative statements that function like a how-to guide for preventing spiritual adultery. And this morning, I want us to see four things he says will be necessary to prevent spiritual adultery. Step one is to submit to God. In chapter 4 and verse 7 of James, he begins with the instruction, Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. And I think it's significant that James starts here. One might think he would start with faith or prayer or confession, but, but instead he starts with submission. And the point that James seems to be making with this starting point is that a commitment problem is ultimately a submission problem. You know, submission is all about allowing God to direct your life. A good illustration of submission can be found in the yoke, that d- device you see around the necks of the, the oxen on the screen, that device that's used to help control the direction of the animal that is being used. You may recall that Jesus invited all to take my yoke upon you, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light, Matthew chapter 11, verse 29 and 30. Jesus is in effect saying, let me give you a yoke. Let me break your willful spirit. Let me tame your rebellious heart. Let me teach you how to walk when God holds the reins. The yoke was a symbol of submission because it was worn by the one who had yielded his or her strength to the control of his or her master. But here is the problem. We live in a world that hates the idea of submission. In fact, many of us today are uncomfortable with the call to submit. Our westernized, industrialized, scientifically advanced culture finds submission outdated, uneducated, and even offensive. That's because our culture takes a Darwinian approach to life. Our culture sees people as nothing more than evolved animals. And animals exist in a constant state of survival. Survival of the fittest. It's competition. The strong animal forces the weak animal into submission. And so we live in a society that tells us submission is equated with weakness or submission is equated with cowardice. But that's not what the Bible says. Submission isn't an expression of weakness. Submission is an expression of devotedness. We demonstrate our devotion to God through our submission to his will. Do you remember what Jesus said in John chapter 14, verse 15? If you love me, you will keep my commandments. In other words, if you love me, you will submit to my will. So in our westernized mindset, submission is stigmatized, but in heaven, submission is glorified. That's why here in James chapter 4 and verse 10, James said, The Lord will exalt those who humble themselves. 
Because only the humble are going to be willing to submit, and only the ones who submit are going to be the ones who are exalted. So if you want to prevent spiritual adultery, you've got to start with submitting to the Father. But that's not all James says you're going to have to do. He also says you're going to have to stand against the devil. The next instruction there in James chapter 4 and verse 7, the second half of that verse says resist the devil. Resistance of the devil is the, the accompanying result of submitting to God. As one commentator said, placing ourselves under God's authority means that we simultaneously refuse to bow to the devil's authority. And yes, he has authority. He's the prince of the power of the air. He's the God of this world. Those are phrases, those are titles direct from Scripture. Interestingly, the verb translated resist also means to stand against. And therefore, it calls to mind the words of Paul in Ephesians chapter 6. Now, you may recognize that Ephesians chapter 6 verses 11 uh, through about verse 17 are about the armor of God. And we typically go there and break down those pieces of armor. But instead of doing that today, I want you to focus on the posture that Paul calls us to have in Ephesians chapter 6. In verse 11 and verse 13, he calls on us to stand. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. The posture here of standing is interesting because it is a defensive posture, not an offensive posture. Paul is not so much using this military metaphor to promote an attack. He's using it to talk about preparedness, defensive preparedness. And such preparation, such resistance is necessary because as Peter said in 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 8, the devil prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. So we have to be ready. We have to be on the defensive. We have to be prepared to stand, to resist. But what does resistance look like? Do you remember when Jesus began teaching his disciples in Matthew chapter 16 and verse 21 that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised? After hearing that, Peter responded by rebuking Jesus of all things. And saying, far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. And upon hearing that rebuke from Peter, we're all familiar with what Jesus did. He turned and looked at Peter and said, get behind me, Satan. Jesus recognized that, that lying behind Peter's words was an attack from the devil. And Jesus, in essence, was saying, I know that the devil is behind this temptation. I know that the devil is trying to get me to choose my will over God's will. And I'm not going to stand for it. So resistance is, as one preacher said, making the hard decision to choose God's will over our own selfish desires. It's, it's the willingness, like Joseph and Potter's house, Potiphar's house, 
to run when the temptation is too great. It's the willingness, like Joshua in the wilderness, to believe when doubt is so pervasive. It's the willingness, willingness like David in the cave, to ignore when peer pressure is so strong. It's the willingness like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the furnace to say no when conformity is too easy. It's the willingness like Jesus in the garden to pray not my will but yours be done when our will is so very different from his. And when you make those kind of difficult decisions, James says the devil will flee from you. The, the promised result of our resistance is the devil's retreat. Nothing demonstrates your commitment more than intentionally separating yourself from the one who is trying to steal your affection. So if you want to prevent spiritual adultery in your own life, not only must you submit to God, but you must be make, willing to make the hard decision time and time again to stand up to and stand against the devil. But there is another thing you're going to have to do. In order to be able to make those tough decisions, in order to be cognizant of the devil's attacks, in order to be able to run or to ignore or to pray correctly, you're going to need to seek closeness to God. See, the next instruction James gives there at the start of verse 8 is draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Pay attention to the order here. It's very important that you pay attention to the order. Because James says when, when we move in the direction of God, God will then move in the direction of us. Now, that's not how salvation works. We need to make that clear. Salvation was initiated by God who showed his love for us and that while we were still sinners, sent Christ to die for us, as Romans chapter 5 and verse 8 says. In other words, when it comes to salvation, God made the first move. But when it comes to our restoration, we're tasked with making the first move. See, remember, James has been writing this letter to brothers, which means he's writing a letter to individuals who became children of God. But these brothers have committed spiritual adultery. That's why James called them adulterous people. So their relationship with God has been compromised and must be repaired. Since they are adulterous people, James is saying that their responsibility is to draw near first. But why? Why would we need to be the ones drawing near first? It's because as one preacher said, God wants to know whether or not we really want a relationship with him. Think about the prodigal son. The youngest son distanced himself from his father when he asked for his inheritance and he left home. The father didn't prevent him from leaving. The father didn't desperately chase after him. The father let him go. And the father waited for him to return. 
And the father welcomed him home when he did. The father didn't make the first move. The son did. Or consider the words of Jesus to the church in Laodicea in Revelation chapter 3 and verse 20. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. Jesus told a collection of lukewarm, self-sufficient Christians that they had distanced themselves from him and the continuation of their relationship with him hinged on whether or not they would open the door to let him back in. See, here's the thing. Deeper intimacy with God is not something you're going to drift into. What I mean is that nobody stumbles into a closer relationship with God. Intimacy with God, just like intimacy in any relationship, is the result of careful cultivation. If you want to repair your relationship with God after committing spiritual adultery, or if you want to improve your relationship with God so that you don't commit spiritual adultery, then you need to draw near to him. You need to move in his direction, and the promises he will always move in yours. But in order to draw near to him, James says there's one more thing we have to do. And that is to sterilize our heart. To sterilize something is to make something completely clean. And that's the last thing James instructs us to do as part of this recipe for for uh, preventing spiritual adultery. He specifically says in the last part of James chapter 4 and verse 8, Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. James is using another Old Testament metaphor here. In Jewish literature, the cleansing of hands and the purifying of the heart served as an indication of holistic purity. Purity inside and out. The hands alluded to the external deeds of the person, while the heart alluded to their inner disposition. And the only way one could approach God was in such a state of inside-out purity. Look at Psalm chapter 24, verses 3 and 4. David rhetorically asked, Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord, and who shall stand in his holy place? He then answered his own question by saying, He who has clean hands and a pure heart, that's who can approach the Lord. James seems to be echoing David's theology and therefore is calling on his readers to purify themselves, to cleanse themselves so that they can draw near to God. In a nutshell, James is calling on his readers to repent of their adultery. Notice that he followed the cleansing and purifying instructions by saying in verse 9 of James chapter 4, Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. This instruction is interesting. It's interesting because we're told in Romans chapter 14 and verse 17 that the kingdom of God is a matter of joy. And we're instructed in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 and verse 16 to rejoice always. So then why does James instruct us? To turn our joy into gloom. It's because in the Old Testament, laughter is frequently associated with foolishness that doesn't take sin seriously. Such is the case in Proverbs chapter 10 and verse 23, where Solomon said, Doing wrong is like a joke to the fool. So James is instructing his readers to take sin seriously. 
This understanding of his instruction is supported by the fact that mourning, which James also instructed, is is associated with grieving over the presence of sin in the Old Testament. So you go to Joel chapter 2 and verse 12, where the people of Israel were instructed by God to return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning. These Words in Joel are a call to repentance, a a summons to grieve, a summons to lament, a summons to uh, mourn sin. And James is echoing this instruction as he calls on his readers to cease their flirtatious behavior with the world. He's ultimately saying that those who have been unfaithful must repent and indicates that such repentance necessitates both regret, the lamenting of the sin, as well as removal, the cessation of the sin. And it's only then can one draw near to God. Only then can one fully draw near to God. So James offers up this recipe. This recipe to repair a case of spiritual idolatry or to prevent it. It starts with submitting to God. It then involves standing against the devil. It then requires you to draw closer to God and to cleanse your heart. But why preach on this? Why take the time to talk about this subject? It's quite likely that for the vast majority of you, there was nothing revelatory about this lesson. What I mean is that for many of you, you didn't hear something you've never heard before. But, but the reason I chose to preach on this topic is because sometimes we need to be reminded to fulfill our commitment to the Lord. I want to tell you about this guy right here. His name is John Stephen Aquari. He competed in the 1968 Olympic Games, which were conducted in Mexico City. He's a marathon runner from Tanzania. He was a world-class marathoner. But he finished dead last at the 1968 Olympics. About halfway through the marathon, there was a jockeying for position by several runners, and, and he was knocked down in the process. When he fell... He dislocated his knee, hence the bandages on that leg. But despite that injury, he got up and finished the marathon, unlike 18 other contestants who, through the course of that race, dropped out. He didn't win. He didn't place. He didn't even finish before the medals were distributed. He didn't even finish before the sun went down. It took him an additional hour and five minutes after the winner crossed the finish line for him to do so himself. And after he finished, a reporter asked him why he didn't just drop out of the race like the other 18 runners. His answer is so beautiful. His response was, my country did not send me 5,000 miles to start the race. My country sent me 5,000 miles to finish the race. James wrote this letter to his fellow Christians. That's that's why he called them brothers. 
And like John Stephen Aquari, Christians have been called not to start a race, but to finish a race. That's what Paul indicated in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. Those who finish the race shall receive an imperishable crown. But James pointed out that some believers get sidetracked from that goal. And he seems to be saying that the way we finish the race is by submitting to the will of the one who sent us. By standing against the devil. By drawing close to our Lord. And by cleansing our hearts. For John Stephen Aquari, that meant submission to the will of his nation. For Christians, that means a submission to the will of our Father. This morning, if, if you're not on course to finish the race, we invite you to change that. If you've started the race, but you've gotten sidetracked, you've gotten off course in some fashion, today's an opportunity to repent. Today's an opportunity to correct your course. But you might be here today and you've never started the race. Today's an invitation to join us in the race by putting on Christ in baptism. This morning, if you have any need to respond to the invitation, we invite you to come while together we stand and sing.